again, a good learning point from my parents, most likely, of teaching me and giving me something that was mine, going out on a limb, starting something and owning it from A to Z. It's different to start, build a business plan, secure funding, in this case, a processing plant, build a business, build a customer base and run a independent thing. Has a, builds a very different background or fundamental baseline than stepping into an existing business and saying, hey, I'm going to take it from X to Y. They're different things. And I guess I like to think that the starting from scratch and building a business from scratch is a different learning that sets you up differently for the future. Welcome to Fall Line Field Notes. We're your hosts, Eric O'Brien and Clay Mitchell. Today's guest is Todd Dumont. Todd is a farmer from the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York, kind of in the shadows of Cornell University. He's an MIT mechanical engineering grad who is a uh, contemporary of Eric and myself, and we have known over his entire farming career. He has uh, grown his farm and grown a processing business simultaneously. And in this episode, we explore the synergies between those businesses. We start out with Todd giving us a little history of how he got into the farming business and how he calls himself a one and a half generation farmer and how he built both the farm as well as some independent, vertically integrated businesses, leverage his farming experience and engineering experience. Everybody in New York just thinks of the city and no agriculture at all. So as Clay said, I live in central New York in the Finger Lakes region. So it's really dead center of the state north, south, east, west. Agriculture is very vibrant, especially the dairy industry. Cornell University, land-grant university, is at the southern end of Cuga Lake, and I basically operate on the north end of Cuga Lake. So we have a handful or better of lakes that run north-south, ranging from 10 to 40 miles long, fairly skinny. The farming here is good. Personally, I feel like we grow very good soybeans, not quite as good corn. So when you look at our averages compared to national averages, the soybean average will rank higher than the corn average. But we compete pretty well. We don't have the huge yields that they have in various places, but it's a very nice mix of good solid agriculture, great dairy. We have great alfalfa, good corn, but also a really nice place to live. So it's a good mix of life and work and agriculture. So personally, I really enjoy it. So your farm sits a little less than 43 degrees north. I think for a lot of the East Coast population, uh, Finger Lakes region feels pretty far north, but that's about the same as the top third of Iowa. So it kind of cuts through similar latitude to the main corn belt. We've seen some pretty significant yield increases from an increase in frost-free days, even over the last 15 to 20 years. Have you noticed much of a change in weather patterns over the 20 years you've been farming? Yes, yes. I've always pushed maturities and doing it much more casually now than I was 10, 15 years ago and having greater success with those longer season varieties. We are, generally speaking, getting more sun, longer summers. But with that said, you know, I look at this climate change, which I know this isn't about, but look at it as greater volatility in the weather. And we're definitely having that. We had a pretty early frost last summer. We had a pretty late frost this summer. I actually had to replant more beans than I ever had replanted prior due to frost. So that volatility is there. But generally speaking, yes, Clay, I would say seasons getting longer, more sun better growing season in, you know, the northern parts of the U.S. 
In our farming regions, we think not just about how the weather's changing, the kind of yield expectations and agronomics on the crops we grow, but should we actually consider different rotations, different cropping systems? So I don't think we, at least in my lifetime, are in danger of kind of, say, burning up where it becomes too hot and dry to grow the crops we grow. I actually feel that if we moved in a direction of a little hotter, drier, climate that would probably benefit us at least for a while obviously it could swing too far being a little farther north i think we have a little bit more flexibility for a hotter drier sunnier growing season in terms of crop diversity i would love to add a fourth crop into our primary rotation get a little bit more biodiversity in the roots and the soils i haven't been able to find that fourth crop that works really well for us yet but I look forward to finding that hopefully in the near future. Todd, could you give our listeners a perspective on your operation as it has changed over time? So maybe start with when you began farming, what did the operation look like? And then walk us through some of the significant changes that you've made over time and give us a little bit of background on the motivation for those changes. My dad started farming. I call myself a one and a half generation. So he was a dentist. We lived in Sarnik Lake, which is in the center, up northern center of the Adirondack Mountains. And it's commonly known as one of the coldest places in the U.S., where we had about 60 beef cows as a hobby farm for my dad and myself. He bought it when I was three. So we did that for five years and fought frozen manure, frozen feed, and cold cows for much of the year. And talk about relative maturity struggling to make 65-day corn mature enough for silage. <laughs> so that says something about the growing season up there. But looking back on that, after five years of doing that, my parents decided to move to central New York, where we just talked about where we're currently farming, and switch away from dairy to crops only. There's a little better fit for him running a dental practice as well. So my dad and I farmed together. Here we started with 165 acres. And over 20 years, drew that to about 600 acres. I went away to school where I met you guys and and our former ski coach. And when you went away to school, did you have in your mind a desire to go back to farming? Was that a primary goal for you? Yes. There's a little funny story to go with that. But yeah, I truly and always have loved farming. And a couple of weeks before going away to school, my mom off- actually offered me my full four years of tuition to not go to school and to stay home at farm. She clearly knew that I was going to go away to school, but by doing so, she made it more of my decision to do that. She wanted me to go to school, wasn't trying to convince me. I think it was more formalizing the, the value of going to school and, and getting off the farm and learning and diversifying myself. Todd, I admire that move by your parents to make this a conscious decision of yours to go away to school. So yeah, that's a very cool story. Yeah, very particular to your personality and the personality of your parents, I think. It's not something everyone would do. It was a nice vote of confidence too, to be honest. So yes, I knew farming was always a love and a passion or not always would be. So I went away from school, did school, kind of did this consulting, living the life, traveling, skiing a couple of years after after school and kind of had this dream job, kind of dream offer, 100% flexibility type deal. And I didn't take it. And that was kind of the, the crux moment. I didn't take it for six months or something. And 
I finally called up my boss and said, I'll take the job. And he's like, he just laughs at me. He's like, Todd, I, I actually filled that 30 minutes ago. <laughs> and I just kind of laughed. And I said, you know, I didn't take the job because I know I want to farm. But it took that to get me to have that realization that, you know, I want to farm for the rest of my life. So that that was another turning moment or that realization moment when I made agriculture my career. So at that point, my part of the farm when I returned home was to start a soybean roasting business. And that was fully mine. My parents supported me. They were there standing behind me on my side. But, you know, I took out a loan, 100% debt on it, built the building, built the equipment. We did it ourselves. You know, talk about working hard. So we actually partnered with a dairy across the street with a vision of creating a high CLA milk. We believed that we could elevate the CLA level in milk 10x by feeding a well-roasted bean with a couple other natural additives. And what is CLA? Conjugated linoleic acid. And what's the benefit of that in milk? CLA is proven to be anti-carcinogenic in animals. And we have not been able to bring human research to the market. But we hope and believe that it will have similar response. The scientists believe that it is an anti-carcinogenic component of milk. Oh, my neighbor is a very progressive dairyman, very research, very forward-thinking, you know, big picture, human health, you know, sustainable agriculture sort of mindset. So talking with him, looking at the science is good. But that was a peripheral, right? I also knew that I could make a business doing my business plan and wrecking it, the financials and the feed. I knew that I could have a business even without that. That was a future benefit that could be phenomenal, but it wasn't necessary to make the business stable. The business plan was buying local beans, roasting them, and selling the roasted beans to local dairies. That was the core of the business plan. So Todd, when you were making this decision, we've seen in a lot of other farming communities that the primary vector for growth is either acquiring or leasing more land and just linearly growing the cropping business. What made you decide to go in this vertical integration as opposed to more horizontal uh, growth? I think there were a couple things. I'm obviously adding value in a traditional sense. Hey, we got soybeans, we can process them we can probably get paid more. But I think the other part of it is something, again, a good learning point for my parents, most likely, of teaching me and giving me something that was mine, going out on a limb, starting something and owning it from A to Z. It's different to start, build a business plan, secure funding, in this case, a processing plant, build a business, build a customer base and run a independent thing. Has a builds a very different background or fundamental baseline than stepping into an existing business and saying, hey, I'm going to take it from X to Y. They're different things. And I guess I like to think that the starting from scratch and building a business from scratch is a different learning that sets you up differently for the future. So I think that was probably the bigger part than just you know adding value to the soybeans that we grew at that point. Both wins. But I think as a person and as a young person entering into an industry, getting that experience early was very valuable. Great. So you got the soybean roasting uh, facility up and running. And then uh, what, what came next? So we did that. That was based on local, so high quality feed. 
problem with roasted beans, to keep it short and quick here, is inconsistency. And basically, they weren't fed because they were never roasted consistently. So we found this very unique roaster that did a very good job. The other thing is we brought all of our year's beans in out of the field, stored them in three bins, blew air on them, made them very homogeneous so that consistent in is consistent out. Also eliminated handling, eliminated the farmer taking them to their farm, putting them in their bin, unloading them, trucking them to my facility, re-elevating and doing all that. So very transparent, efficient movement of the commodity to the end customer. And that core setup there is what has enabled us to get to where we are, is being efficient from A to Z. You could charge so much in storage, it doesn't make sense, but you got to make it a win for everybody. The core driving factor for us here is to strengthen New York agriculture. And you do that by sharing in those wins and sharing the opportunities. And that's what that business started to establish. We made a better feed for the dairy at a lower cost, paid the farmers a better value, and reduced their handling on their soybeans. And fortunately, there was enough in the middle to pay down the debt and run the business. So that core we established back in 2003 when I came back and joined the farm formally. So moving ahead, working you know for 10 years or so, thinking about rail sites and transloading, most of New York's beans were exported. Corn market was weak. So I'd be kind of looking at rail sites and different things to what's the next step. 2013-14, I saw the commodity markets softening. We'd had some really strong markets from 2008 or 9 through 13-14, and they were softening, and I wasn't ready to pull the trigger on the rail site. So I did corn grinding business at my home farm. So right next, right across the driveway from the roasting side of the business, I put up a corn grinder and started grinding corn. Same model based on the what we learned with the roasted beans, local, high quality, consistent, made a better cornmeal than anybody, slightly decommoditized it. So get a flat rate to grind and work with them to buy wise. Another synergy here that I'm proud of, the money we took out of the market covered all of our processing fees by 150%. So what I'm saying there is we bought high, sold low, took the money out of the market in excess of all of the processing that we charged. So that means we brought that much value to the community. We enabled the growers to sell high and the buyers to buy low and just brought value there. So maybe give us a little comparison of before you stepped in, how did this market work and the pieces of value that you added here that allowed you to build a business while providing value to both the farmers and the dairymen? Yeah, so now we all trade. We In agriculture, we're very used to staying hedged and buying and selling off the board. You go back 20 years ago and it was less frequent. It was still done. Obviously, the board still existed and you know the Cargills and ADMs were all trading and doing all of that. But the local farmer mill, the local corn grinder would have said an offer, hey, I'll give you 80 bucks a ton for your corn. Didn't matter what the board was. They may not have even known what it was at that point. And then they would sell it to the dairy farmers for $90 a ton, make $10 to do it. So there was kind of a fixed margin there and fixed pricing. So the 
crop farmer got less than a dairy farmer did because the grinding person needed to cover the truck, the trucking and hauling and grinding and all of that. By building a business that stayed 100% hedged, which means every time I bought grain, I would sell grain on the futures market. And every time I sold it, I would buy it back, allowed for better price discovery and price separation. So when the price is really high, call up all my neighbors and say, say, sell me all your corn, sell me all your beans. You know, we're putting in highs here. And they would sell it to me, which was great. I paid them a lot. And it worked because I then sold futures to offset that. And then ideally, the futures would drop. And it could go in any order. But futures would change, ideally in the lower direction. And I'd call up all the dairies and be like, hey, the you know, price of corn or price of soybeans is really low. Why don't you lock in your feed for the year? And they'd be like, okay, great. So I would sell them and buy back the futures. And because I was now buying the futures lower than I sold them when I bought from the grain farmer, you know, the person on the other side of that piece of paper, the other side of that futures contract or hedge contract basically provided the cash. And that amount of money that we took out of there was in excess of what we charged for all of the processing that we did. How do you do you, do you think consciously about cost of capital and thinking about your cost of capital and your returns from farming, your returns from some of the operating businesses, a conscious decision of how you allocate that capital to tying it up in the land, which is obviously going to have most likely longer term kind of single digit on average type returns versus what you may be seeing from some of your operating businesses? Yes, for sure. And that those thoughts have changed dramatically in the last 12 to 18 months, as you guys are well aware of. <laughs> so the first significant portion of my career on the cost of capital was, not to be complacent, was relatively irrelevant with interest rates in the below five and down towards two. It was pretty pretty easy and pretty wise to borrow money and double your money on it. Currently, that's a very different situation. So currently, we are in a very aggressive debt reduction. Because we have grown so fast, we are fairly well leveraged. And with these current interest rates, we have a good portion locked, but the stuff that's not is much more expensive. So now our our trajectory has changed a little from a very aggressive rapid growth to aggressive rapid debt reduction. So yes, we are always thinking about that. We're always considering it. We're always figuring out how we do want to utilize the capital we have available. It's not all just business though. You know, there's a part of every farm kid that just wants to own land. And that's really hard to shake. So it's sometimes you buy land when there may be other better business opportunities, but you still want that piece of land for some reason one or another. Well, one of the things that we see both on the buy and on occasions when we're selling is land typically trades once every generation. And if you are a farmer in a particular area and your radius of operations is fixed, when an opportunity comes up, it may be the one chance you get in your lifetime to buy it. So that can be a very strong motivator. Yes. And I would say, uh, at least for the first half of the grain business is tenure here. At least emotionally, it was very much so structured to support the farming habit. Uh, The love for farming allowed some greater cash flow, some greater returns. 
and some pretty aggressive debt retirement on all of that land. So out of the gate, the processing business was really established to support the farming business. And where does it stand today as far as you know, you're trying to deleverage, so focused on generating cash and retiring debt. When you think about you know, business expansion or things that you've done uh, recently that you're most excited about, what, what would some of those projects be? Yeah, so, so we haven't quite yet touched on probably our biggest expansion in the grain processing world. Is we started in 2019, very tail end, we started extruding and pressing soybeans. So our roasting business was great. We did a couple hundred thousand bushels a year. Basis in New York was still very depressed with just a few big players working to export beans. And probably, in my opinion, kind of taking advantage of the farmer just due to a lack of market. Meanwhile, we had thousands of cows. Cuga County is, I think, the top dairy producing county in the nation or close to it, if not. You know, all of these cows needing feed and importing feed from other areas of the country, primarily the Midwest. So it was a great spot to plop down a soybean processing plant, a significant soybean processing plant that could add value to those beans that every grower in the state and add value to the livestock farmers as well. So we pulled that trigger in 2019, put up a mechanical extrusion plant capable of processing three quarters of New York State's beans. It was not at that capacity at that point. We're about halfway to that point now and looking to continue to grow over the next few years. So currently, we're slated to process five to six million bushels of soybeans from the 2023 crop into mechanically extruded soybean meal and soybean oil. And what kind of value transformation does that create? If you look at um, you know the value of a harvested bushel of soybeans and then the value of that bushel once it's been uh, extruded and processed? Yeah, so that's a good question. And if you think about it in terms of bushels, you can get you know what dollar fifty two dollars per bushel gain in value doing that. The true value is what we call the crush ratio, which is just a ratio between beans, meal, and oil. And you know that's a traded ratio, and it is tremendously volatile. When I started, I looked back at a 10-year trend and thought, hey, if I could lock in a $1.20 standard crush, I could make this business go. And that's what I went to the bank with. I said, look, at, if you look at this 10-year trend. Like 25% of the time, you can lock in $1.20 or better. So if I can be in the top 25%, I can get a $1.20 crush, and therefore I could do X, Y, and Z sort of return on investment here. Now, well, so I started the business, and pretty immediately upon starting, that number dropped to $0.57, cents, I think, down in that range. So it was a great first year. And uh, then the crush has rebounded now to incredibly high levels. I think we've seen 300 or $3 on the crush in the last year and a half. So things have changed dramatically. There's other challenges that have popped up, inversion and volatility and all that. But um, So that ratio or what you asked for is what is the value that you can extract from the beans is, is very volatile, just like we talked about with the weather earlier. The spreads are all over the place. So it becomes how well can you capture that value and and how lucky do you get? Yeah, yeah. 
And how do you think about risk management in a business like that with that kind of volatility? I assume that you are able to, at least on the pricing side, do some of the hedging. How do you think about you know, generating consistent returns in such a volatile margin environment? Yeah, so I'm young to this. I've been at it three years, so very young, very highly leveraged, as we mentioned. So I have to be conservative. Also, as I mentioned about immediately upon starting, I hadn't traded, I hadn't protected anything because I didn't know when I was going to start, didn't know how much I was going to make. I didn't know if I could actually sell it. So to go out and put on a bunch of crush would have been pretty risky. So I started the business, the value dropped, the margins dropped to below below operating cost, and I was upside down for the first year. So as soon as those values kind of returned and I started seeing 120s, man, I was, I'd locked right. I jumped right on. I'm like, okay, 120, 120. I'm, I'm not having 57s again. And I got pretty far out, pretty well protected and hedged at a profitable position. And then I sat there and watched that crush go up to like 180 to 200. I'm like, well, there's a lot of lost opportunity there. But I had locked myself in for 18 months at that point. So basically took a very conservative approach there. I'm, the crush has remained strong. We've even driven to higher levels, but I had a lot locked in at that kind of 120 range. So I'm working those up now, have not been able to hit any of the highs just because I have been fairly conservative and been forward contracting and forward locking in my profit. But I've been able to work my numbers up to that kind of 150 to 170 range. So I'm still leaving a fair bit of opportunity on the table, but you know, could drop back down to 57 again, you know, next month, and and then I'd be protected. In doing that, I'm eliminating the risk of the below cost numbers, but I'm also missing those super high numbers. So then it, it also becomes a a play in what percentage do you lock, when, and how much. Relating your processing business back to the farm again. Do you see the returns as correlated or uncorrelated? Uncorrelated, to be honest. They're they're very different businesses. As I say that, crush to a degree follows soybeans, even though higher soybeans lead to poorer crush as soybeans climb, meal and oil often climb together. So there is a little bit of correlation there, but you know, we work them as completely separate businesses. We manage them as separate businesses. There are many pros and cons and interactions, but the processing business really makes money and value on basis trading and hedging and trading spreads and crush. The production company, being the the true farm, as you would call it, you know, the weather drives there, which again, good weather drives, generally speaking, drives supply up and, and value down and markets so how well can you you know price your grain and how much you know can you produce per dollar of input is you know very important there overlaid on that you have basis and i will say that the basis having the the processing company really strengthens our basis values so if it hasn't done on our listeners yet this conversation encapsulates, I think, a big theme that we see in agriculture, right? Where farmers are inherently entrepreneurs and they're running, in some respects, way more complicated businesses than many of our startups. 
where in this podcast series, we've interviewed a number of CEOs who have the benefit of a very focused business plan around a single product that they're trying to take to market. They have the benefit of outside equity capital, where if the business doesn't work, they're not going to lose their home or their assets. They're going to go find another opportunity, which isn't to take away from the risk that they're taking or the value that they're creating. But I think what it does underscore is the multifaceted set of requirements in order to be a successful farmer. And Todd in particular here, not only has demonstrated an ability to be a successful farmer, but an entrepreneur building multiple separate businesses that have obviously interconnectivity, but require an incredibly broad array of skills. And so I I just uh, sit here in awe listening to the development of your business over time and the entrepreneurial conviction that you've had every time you've expanded into a new line of business. Well, Todd, this has been a phenomenal uh, conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time and look forward to our next conversation. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for all that you guys do for agriculture too. You know, it probably goes without being said, but you guys really, really advocate for our industry and, and do a lot to make it happen. So thank you and thank you for the opportunity. And uh, as, as always, you're welcome anytime, both of you. That was a terrific conversation with Todd. I did not appreciate going into that, just how entrepreneurial that discussion would would be. But the reality with uh, Todd is that we're effectively having an interview with a farmer who is also a CEO, not of just one, but of multiple businesses. So I found that fascinating. Yeah, I think you know we invest in very technical businesses and Todd approaches his businesses as technically as any farmer who I know over the years visiting Todd. He's done a lot of the similar kind of engineering and fabrication work on his farm that I did over my career. I think the biggest truth that, that Todd said in this podcast was that crush margins are very volatile. So, you know, there are certain, I think, processing businesses where the input and output become a little bit smoother. There's more of a, a fixed margin, but that's definitely not the case here. So the hedging is critically important and really appreciate the way that Todd kind of transparently shared that with us. I think this is an episode that we'd love all of our entrepreneurs to listen to in in the uh, venture world to get a sense for the decision-making, the risk management, the engineering, all of the uh, financial management side of, of the business to really understand the complex and wide-ranging set of considerations required to be successful as an operator in in agriculture. I think Todd really exemplifies that broad-based, jack-of-all-trades kind of skill set that we see quite a bit. I think Todd is exceptional in the farming communities that that we uh, tend to spend time in, but indicative of a common ethos uh, around caring about the industry deeply, wanting to make the world a better place, um, and wanting to provide for their families by building solid, lasting businesses. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fall Line Field Notes. We're your hosts, Clay Mitchell. And Eric O'Brien. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about agriculture and the future of our food system, please visit us on the web at fall-line-capital.com slash fieldnets. You can link to our other podcast episodes and read our latest thoughts on the cutting edge of farming and technology.